Chapter Twenty Five, Part One, of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by François Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Five, Louis the Eleventh, fourteen sixty one to fourteen eighty three, Part One. Louis the Eleventh was thirty eight years old, and had been living for five years in voluntary exile at the castle of Genappe in Hainault, beyond the dominions of the king his father, and within those of Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, when on the twenty third of July, fourteen sixty one the day after charles the seventh death he learned that he was king of france he started at once to return to his own country and take possession of his kingdom he arrived at rheims on the fourteenth of august was solemnly crowned there on the eighteenth in presence of the two courts of france and burgundy and on the thirtieth made his entry into paris within which he had not set foot for six and twenty years in 1482, twenty-one years afterwards, he, sick and almost dying in his turn at his castle of Plessis-les-Tours, went nevertheless to Amboise, where his son, the Dauphin, who was about to become Charles the Eighth, and whom he had not seen for several years, was living. "'I do expressly enjoin upon you,' said the father to the son, "'as my last counsel and my last instructions,' not to change a single one of the chief officers of the crown. When my father, King Charles the Seventh, went to God, and I myself came to the throne, I disappointed. Deprived of their appointments, all the good and notable knights of the kingdom, who had aided and served my said father in conquering Normandy and Queen, in driving the English out of the kingdom, and in restoring it to peace and good order, for so I found it, and right rich also. Therefrom much mischief came to me, for thence I had the war called the Commonweal, which all but cost me my crown. With the experience and paternal care of an old man, whom the near prospect of death rendered perfectly disinterested, wholly selfish as his own life had been, Louis' heart was bent upon saving his son from the first error which he himself had committed on mounting the throne. "'Gentlemen,' said Dunors, on rising from table at the funeral banquet, held at the Abbey of St. Denis, in honour of the obsequies of King Charles the Seventh, "'We have lost our master. Let each look after himself.' The old warrior foresaw that the new reign would not be like that which had just ended. Charles the Seventh had been a prince of indolent disposition, more inclined to pleasure than ambition, whom the long and severe trials of his life had moulded to government, without his having any passion for governing, and who had become in a quiet way a wise and powerful king, without any eager desire to be incessantly and everywhere chief actor and master. His son Louis, on the contrary, was completely possessed with a craving for doing, talking, agitating, domineering, and reaching, no matter by what means, 
the different and manifold ends he proposed to himself. Anything but prepossessing in appearance, supported on long and thin shanks, vulgar in looks, and often designedly ill-dressed, and undignified in his manners, though haughty in mind, he was powerful by the sheer force of a mind, marvellously lively, supple, unerring, ready and inventive, and on a character, indefatigably active, and pursuing success as a passion, without any scruple or embarrassment, in the employment of means. His contemporaries, after observing his reign for some time, gave him the name of the universal spider, so relentlessly did he labor to weave a web of which he himself occupied the centre, and extended the filaments in all directions. As soon as he was king, he indulged himself with that first piece of vindictive satisfaction, of which he was in his last moments obliged to acknowledge the mistake. At Reims, at the time of his coronation, the aged and judicious Duke Philip of Burgundy had begged him to forgive all those who had offended him. Louis promised to do so, with the exception, however, of seven persons whom he did not name. They were the most faithful and most able advisers of the king, his father, those who had best served Charles the Seventh, even in his embroilments with the Dauphin, his conspiring and rebellious son, viz. Antony de Chabanais, Count of Dampartin, Peter de Brise, Andrew de Laval, Juvenal des Ursines, etc. Some lost their places, and were even, for a while, subjected to persecution. The others, remaining still at court, received there many marks of the king's disfavor. On the other hand, Louis made a show of treating graciously the men who had most incurred and deserved disgrace at his father's hands, notably the Duke of Alençon and the Count of Armagnac. Nor was it only in respect of persons that he departed from paternal tradition. He rejected it openly in the case of one of the most important acts of Charles the Seventh reign, the pragmatic sanction issued by that prince at Borses in 1438, touching the internal regulations of the Church of France and its relations towards the papacy. The popes, and especially Pius II, Louis XI's contemporary, had constantly and vigorously protested against that act. Barely four months after his accession, on the 27th of November, 1461, Louis, in order to gain favor with the Pope, abrogated the pragmatic sanction, and informed the Pope of the fact in a letter full of devotion. There was great joy at Rome, and the Pope replied to the King's letter in the strongest terms of gratitude and commendation. But Louis's courtesy had not been so disinterested as it was prompt. He had hoped that Pius II would abandon the cause of Ferdinand of Aragon, a claimant to the throne of Naples, and would uphold that of his rival, the French prince, John of Anjou, Duke of Calabria, whose champion Louis had declared himself. He bade his ambassador at Rome to remind the Pope of the royal hopes. You know, said the ambassador to Pius II, it is only on this condition that the king, my master, abolished the pragmatic. He was pleased to desire that in his kingdom full obedience should be rendered to you. He demands, on the other hand, 
that you should be pleased to be a friend to France. Otherwise, I have orders to bid all the French cardinals withdraw, and you cannot doubt but that they will obey. But Pius II was more proud than Louis XI dared to be imperious. He answered, We are under very great obligations to the King of France, but that gives him no right to exact from us things, contrary to justice and to our honor. We have sent aid to Ferdinand by virtue of the treaties we have with him. Let the king your master compel the Duke of Anjou to lay down arms and prosecute his rights by course of justice, and if Ferdinand refuse to submit thereto, we will declare against him, but we cannot promise more. If the French who are at our court wish to withdraw, the gates are open to them. The king, a little ashamed at the fruitlessness of his concession and of his threat, had for an instant some desire to re-establish the pragmatic sanction for which the Parliament of Paris had taken up the cudgels, but all considered he thought it better to put up in silence with his rebuff, and pay the penalty for a rash concession, than to get involved with the court of Rome in a struggle of which he could not measure the gravity, and he contented himself with letting the Parliament maintain in principle and partially keep up the pragmatic. This was his first apprenticeship in that outward resignation and patience amidst his own mistakes, of which he was destined to be called upon more than once in the course of his life to make a humble but skilful use. End of chapter 25, part 1